Luke chapter number 24 in your Bibles this morning. We're going to be reading uh, from the scripture this morning that pastor is going to be preaching. And we're reading the story of the, of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we get to celebrate. This is a wonderful time of year to help us to focus and to think about what Jesus Christ has done for us. In Luke chapter number 24 this morning, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning... They came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in, and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And they, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen." Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Then arose Peter and ran unto the sepulcher, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed, wondering in himself at which, at that which was to come to pass. Let's take our Bibles, turn back over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, as Luke wraps up. Uh, the letter that God inspired him to record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 24 in your Bibles this morning. You know, it's an established fact of finance that when you pay with cash that you have earned rather than merely using a credit card, that you think more deeply about the cost of what you're paying. Something about that cold, hard cash leaving your hand rather than the swipe of a piece of plastic. You know, we really don't buy things with money. We buy things with hours of our life. It was Henry David Thoreau who said, The price of anything is the amount of your life that you exchange for it. And that is so very true. Money is just a representative of a certain amount of my life that I invested to be able to earn that money. And when I spend that money on something, I'm exchanging my life for what commodity it is that I want to take possession of. It was Gary Ezzo years ago. He's a, um, an author uh, on... Uh, on family parenting, old-fashioned parenting uh, techniques, tremendous material. And Gary Ezzo spoke of his children as an illustration. And he told about how when his kids were just little, he was teaching them the value of money. And so they had a field that they wanted to turn into a garden, but it was full of rocks. So he got some five-gallon buckets from a Home Depot-like store, and, uh, and he gave those buckets to his kids, 
And he said, I want you to fill these buckets full of rocks. And then when you get a bucket full, I want you to carry it all the way to the back corner of our property, the furthest point away, and dump it out, make a pile of rocks. Dump it out, bring the empty bucket back, fill it up again, and take it back and dump it in the back corner of the property. And for every bucket of rocks you pick up and carry out to the back corner of the property and dump it, I'm going to give you, and I don't know what the amount of money was, I've long since forgotten, but there was an amount of money that each bucket of rocks were worth. And so his kids, for a significant period of time, filled up buckets with rocks, carried them down, dumped them out, and earned money from their dad. Well, they grew up and they were adults and at the stage where they were buying homes and and one of them had just purchased a home. I think it was their very first home. And, and so they, they had to scrape together as much money as they could to be able to put as a down payment. They were talking to their dad and the dad asked them, how much did you put down for a down payment? And the child replied back, 2,500 buckets of rocks. Still in his adulthood, he knew the value of every dollar. Every dollar represented a certain amount of his life, of work, of labor. And the purchase of that house brought back to his mind the hours of hard labor on the rock pile of his dad's house, earning resources. Well, the bottom line up front, the bluff of the morning message this morning is that what is valuable costs dearly. Anything that's valuable costs dearly. In our previous messages, we've studied the awful events that led up to Jesus' trial, arrest, torture, execution, and last message, finally, his burial. We're now ready to, to examine the resurrection. We're standing on the edge of the resurrection story, and we're ready to uh, examine this account of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. All four gospel writers were used of God to record this story. But they're not all exactly alike. They all give different pieces of information. But they all tell a part of a composite story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are, however, four items that are found in each of the four gospels. The tomb was empty. Each gospel talks about that. The tomb was empty. Women came first to the tomb. They saw what they saw. And they went and gave testimony as to what they saw. Angels told the women what happened. And when the women went back and told the others, the others didn't believe them. Or they doubted their story. Now those are four parts of the story. The tomb was empty Angels explained what happened. Women were the first to see it and to go back and tell the story, and the men wouldn't believe them. Those four events or four things are found in each of the gospel accounts that we read in our Bible. And there's one thing that's missing from every account. You know what's missing in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? The resurrection's missing. There's not one mention in any of the four accounts of the moment of the resurrection of Jesus Christ when he rose from the grave. We pick up the story 
It's already happened. It's in the aftermath. And the gospel writers tell us about the story of Jesus' resurrection, the historical event, in fact, of Jesus' resurrection after the fact, telling us a little bit about what happened. So we pick up the story. I'm sorry, we pick up the historical event. I'm, I'm trying to retrain myself. I got caught last week. Um, I have, uh, I have uh, read and have talked to uh, our children's ministry about how that coming out of the secular world, the word story is always used of fiction and how apologetic writers in Christianity are encouraging uh, pastors and Sunday school teachers to never use the word story of anything in the Bible because children raised in a secular world, that's a fairy tale, that's a fairy story, that's a make-believe story. But this isn't make-believe. This isn't a story in that sense. This is historic event and an historical account of a real event that really happened. And we're picking up this historical event on this first day of the week. Chapter 24 and verse number 1 says, Now upon the first day of the week. This was the third day that Jesus Christ had been in the tomb. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Our Bible tells us it was the first day of the week. It was the third day that he had been in the grave. Matthew 12 references it this way. Jesus Christ had been in the tomb three days and three nights. So the phrase three days and three nights, the phrase On the third day he rose are found in the Bible referring to the length of time Jesus Christ spent in the tomb. Now, the Jewish reckoning of time was that any portion of a day counted as a day when they were giving an account of time. So three days and three nights referred to a portion of three days. And the third day was the third day in the tomb. Those three days were a part of Friday because they had to get him in the grave before 6 p.m. when Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week began. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Friday evening uh, before, which was the sixth day of the week, before 6 p.m. when the seventh day of the week began. So he was in the grave part of Friday. He was in the grave all day Saturday. And he was in the grave part of Sunday. Now, in the Jewish reckoning of time, that means that equals three days and three nights. Or the third day, the third day he was in the tomb was the day that he rose from the grave. So just a little tidbit for those Bible students who love to get into the intricacies of the text and the history of the Jewish people. Because the, one, of the, uh, one of the first lessons in understanding the Bible is to understand what it meant to the people who first read it. To understand the history, the geography, the customs and manners of the people to whom God initially gave that portion of Scripture to, what it meant to them is what it means. That's what God meant when he inspired the recording of those words. And so, Jesus Christ has been in the grave since Friday afternoon in our vernacular. It was the late in the day on the uh, sixth day of the week. He was in the grave for the entire seventh day of the week. He was in the grave for a portion of the first day of a new week. And at dawn on that first day, things began to, began to happen in the story. Verse number one tells us 
that it was the, the brink of day at the uh, very early in the morning, uh, verse number one says. Uh, verse number, let's see, verse number, um, okay, that's another reference. But another one says uh, it, was it was just dark, that lingering between dark and day at the very beginning of the sun rising is when this occurred. Let's see, let me just, let me just reference as well who was there. Um, chapter 23, verse 55 says there were women who had come from Galilee. Chapter 24, verse 1 says uh, that on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they, those women, chapter uh, 24, at the end of verse number 1, um, let's see, in verse... I'm getting two things mixed up together. I apologize. Verse 10 names them, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and other women. So there were a group of women who came to the tomb at the brink of day, at, at dawn. Now, why did they come? Well, the Bible tells us here in verse number one, they came to bring spices. And that really brings up to me a very interesting uh, truth about human dynamics. You see, these same women on Friday afternoon watched Jesus Christ being crucified. They watched what happened when he died. They were there when the ground shook. They were there when, when there was uh, all of the events that happened, the miraculous supernatural things that happened at the moment Jesus Christ died. They were there when they watched Joseph take Jesus' dead body off the cross. They were there and watched Nicodemus join Joseph and take his body just a few yards away, not very far away at all, to a garden tomb that Joseph owned, and they watched how they applied spices and linen wraps to wrap the body. Now remember, this is the afternoon just before the Sabbath day began. They have to get the dead body taken care of before 6 p.m. because they cannot touch a dead body on the Sabbath day. So there is a pressure to, to get this thing taken care of. Joseph had gone to Pilate. Joseph and Nicodemus together, these two men who had not been amongst the followers of Jesus Christ. They were not of the apostles and the ones that traveled with Jesus Christ. That These women watched these two men as they prepared Jesus Christ's body with spices and strips of linen cloth. And then the Bible said, we saw it last week, how they saw how they prepared the body, and then they saw where they laid the body. So they'd seen all that. And these are the same women coming back. And they're coming back with spices. They had seen the two men prepare the body with spices and with strips of linen cloth as their custom was. But the women are coming back because the guys didn't do a very good job. Which is an interesting thing about human dynamics for men, no matter how hard you try, a woman's going to come behind and fix it. She's going to do it right. Particularly when it comes to things like spices, ointments, and strips of cloth. But for, for the, the, uh, to, to cut a little slack for Joseph and Nicodemus, they were un, up against a time clock. They were rushing to get this finished. And likely, in their hurry and in their rushing, they probably did what most men would do in the quality of the job they did and the women sitting back watching it all made up their mind right then we're coming back and they went out 
and got some spices right then. And then after the Sabbath day was over, they got some more spices and they prepared everything. And at the dawn, at the brink of day, they're showing up at the tomb to finish the job the men tried to do on Friday afternoon. Isn't the Bible practical? Doesn't it help us to understand human nature? And how that sometimes we men can get in a hurry and we just don't get it done quite right. But thank God for women who know what needs to be fixed and can come back behind us and help uh, get things done a little bit better. And no doubt all of these people did everything they did because of their profound love for Jesus Christ. And they did what they did in honor of their friend who had passed away. And so here's this crowd of women coming back. Now what happens? Well, there, there are four experiences that people uh, experienced. Uh, they're at the tomb and on that day. And I want you to see what these four experiences of Resurrection Sunday morning are. The first experience is the experience of confusion. Confusion that flowed out of forgetfulness. But before we zero in on the forgetfulness, I want you to consider something that's not in our text, but is very much related to the confusion that flowed out of their forgetfulness. And that is a confusion that flowed out of making a rash assumption. John goes into this in his telling of the account in the Gospel of John. And, and, and John tells the story about how the, the ladies didn't all come at the same time. It wasn't a group of ladies that all walked at the same time. They came straggling in. Mary Magdalene, it appears, when you study all four gospel accounts, Mary Magdalene, it appears, was the first one to arrive, and she arrived alone. And others came straggling in as groups or individuals uh, afterwards. But Mary Magdalene came, apparently alone. She came to the tomb. Nobody was there. The stone was gone. At least it was away from the mouth of the tomb. She looked inside the tomb. She saw the body was gone. And Mary Magdalene, with no explanation from an angel, Mary Magdalene looked at the obvious and Mary Magdalene made an assumption. And she turned and ran and found Peter and John. And she said to Peter and John, somebody stole Jesus' body. Now that was a good assumption. That was a, that was a, a logical assumption. Uh, Mary looked at everything she could see and everything she could see told her there's no other explanation but that somebody has come, they've moved the stone, they stole the body. She ran to Peter and John and told them that the body was gone and somebody had taken it. Well, Peter and John ran uh, to the tomb to see what Mary had found. Mary followed them and they went to the tomb. Peter and, uh, and, and John got there. Peter ran in. John looked in. The Bible says that they were confused by what they saw. And so they, they left. But Mary stayed there. And Mary was weeping, trying to figure out who took Jesus' body and what they did with it. When all of a sudden, an angel from inside the tomb said to Mary, said, why are you crying? 
And Mary responded, and I quote from John 20, they have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. Now Mary's assumption made perfect sense to her. Everything she could see gave her no other explanation. And what had happened seemed obvious. And so her response was to run, get Peter and John, come back, try to figure, you know, where's the body? How can we find out where the body is? And then when they left her alone, they left, it's kind of sad, uh, Peter and John went off uh, very much confused and deliberating on, on what all of this means. And they left Mary there exasperated. They left Mary there weeping. And when the angel asked Mary why she was weeping, she said, they've taken away my Lord. I, I, I don't know where they have laid him. You see, she thought there were no other explanations. And what had happened seemed obvious to her. And so she ran to others, told them what had happened. Confusion was created. And the problem was that nobody knew the whole story yet. Her assumption was built upon the facts that she could observe without knowing what she couldn't see. The problem was that she made a bad assumption and she asked the wrong question. The wrong question was, where did they put Jesus' body? A better question would have been, what happened to Jesus' body? To seek more information, to find out what was going on. And so in this human interest that there's confusion, the confusion was exasperated by a, a bad assumption made by someone that made a logical assumption based on everything she could see. She spread that confusion. Other people became confused. And she was asking the wrong question instead of asking what happened to the body. She asked where was the body. Well, when I was meditating on this and studying Luke chapter 24... I was reminded, just in a personal sense, in a practical sense, I was reminded of the importance of learning everything I can learn about something before I make a decision on it. You know, throughout life we make lots of decisions. We make decisions daily in life. And sometimes we make decisions based upon the information we have. Like Mary, we could make a bad decision if we don't know all the information. But asking the right questions and getting all the information helps us to make a better decision based on more information rather than making assumptions that may be problematic. And so John records the confusion that grew out of an initial wrong assumption. Luke picks up the story and shows how that confusion impacted the situation of the ones who gathered at the tomb apparently after Mary Magdalene had come. And after she had left with the wrong assumption. Picking up in verse number 6 of our story. In verse number 6, the Bible says that the angels, verse 5, they asked the question, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember. Here's the, here's the power of forgetfulness. Don't you remember Jesus told you this was going to happen? This is the angel talking to the ones who gathered at the tomb. They're confused. They're, they're searching. And the angel says, this is a no-brainer. He told you this was going to happen. Don't you remember what he said? Verse number 6. Remember how he spake unto you 
when he was yet in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. You see, the first experience that we observe when we study the story of Jesus' resurrection is that initially there was an experience of confusion. Some of the confusion came because of making a rash decision based on faulty information. But it went much deeper than that. It was a forgetfulness of the Word of God. Forgetting what God has said. You understand how many times we can be confused when we don't remember what we read in the Bible? When we don't remember God said to do this in this situation, do that in this situation, we don't remember it, and so we make a decision, we do the opposite of what God said in the Bible that you should do in this situation or that situation, and our forgetfulness of what God has said results in our confusion of what to do in the moment. That was the first experience that I see around the tomb. The fact that they did not remember. And once the angel said, don't you remember? It was like a flash. Their memory kicked back in. Have you ever had that happen to you? Where you couldn't remember something. You would have sworn it didn't happen this way or this didn't happen or whatever. And, and, and then someone said something and it jogged your memory and you went, oh yeah. I'd forgotten that. And your memory kicks back in. I can remember early in my years of ministry in Canada, back in the 1970s, first church we had planted. I can remember studying. I was young. Uh, I was uh, still forming an understanding of theology and an understanding of different things in the Word of God. I graduated from four years of Bible college, but I was still growing. I was still learning. I was still trying to understand and, and as a young pastor, I remember reading and studying and then going back to my college notes because I, I, I thought, I, I've never read this. I've never heard this before. I was never taught this. And I went back to my college notes, and you know what I found? I can distinctly remember on one occasion finding in a college set of notes the very thing that I was thinking, I've never heard this before, and there it was in my own handwriting. I wrote it down. As the professor said it. And now, a few years later, I swore I had never heard that before. And as soon as I saw that in my own handwriting, I went, oh yeah, I remember that class. I remember that professor. Human dynamics. Sometimes we can forget something and honestly not know that it ever happened. Until something happens... Or somebody says something, or somebody reminds us, and we go, oh yeah, that's what happened on Resurrection Sunday. We have people that are confused. They're confused. They don't know what happened. They don't know what to do. They're confused. They're confused because they just took the initial observation and made rash assumptions that were wrong. And then that led to a denial of the reality of what really did happen. Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And as soon as the angels said, don't you remember? They remembered. Yeah, I remember now. Confusion was the very first experience of 
Resurrection Sunday. Now that led to a second, uh, expect, uh, a, a second experience. And the second experience was disbelief. And it was a disbelief that flowed out of grief. In our text in chapter 24 and in verse number 9, the Bible says that the ladies returned from the sepulcher, told all these things unto the eleven, to all the rest. The names are listed in verse number 10. Verse number 11 says, And their words seemed to them. Who's the them? The them were the apostles and some others that are mentioned in verse number 9. These women went back and told the men, the apostles, and others that were gathered there that probably included both men and women. And the words of the women seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. The second experience on Resurrection Sunday is, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe what the angel said. I don't believe that he rose from the grave. I don't believe it. And that was coming from the apostles. That was coming from the ones that followed him most closely. And they didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And why didn't they believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, our text in, in Luke 24 does not attribute it to anything specific. But I do read in Mark's account, in Mark 16.10, I put it down in your little worksheet there, the fact that the Bible says that they didn't believe the words of the women as they mourned and wept. I want you to understand that there was a disbelief and the disbelief flowed out of grief. They were mourning. They were weeping. I was studying a little bit about that, uh, about that, that state of heart and mind. What it means to be mourning something that has happened or somebody, Jesus Christ, who's dead. What, what is the internal heart emotion of mourning and weeping? And I found that the word grief is often associated with that very thing. Grieving someone who has died. Anyone that's lost a close loved one to death has experienced some level of grief depending on how close that person was. The closer that person was, the deeper the grief. I've often said at funerals that grief is the price we must pay for the privilege of loving and being loved. And I've often thought in a funeral service when people were brokenhearted, they were grieving the loved one they had lost. And outside the building, there are people walking down the sidewalk laughing. There are people driving to the restaurant laughing. They have no grief because they didn't know. They didn't love. And they were not loved by the person that had died. But the people who grieve are the people who love that person that is now gone. And were loved by that person that is now gone. And the deeper their love, the deeper their grief. The deeper their love, the deeper the loss of the object of that love. And the deeper they grieve. And here is a room full of people. that The women come running back all excited. The angels told us he's risen from the grave. 
What do they find in the room when they get there? They find people weeping. They find people mourning. I, I was looking, and, and I, in fact, I put it in your little worksheet uh, from an internet search. Grief is what we think and feel on the inside when someone we love dies. Examples include fear and loneliness, panic, pain, yearning, anxiety, emptiness. It's the internal meaning given to the experience of loss. And the outward weeping is merely the outward evidence of the inward grief that I'm experiencing because I've lost somebody that loved me and somebody that I loved. And that was what was going on in the room with the apostles and with the others that were gathered there. They were really grieving. They thought he was dead and gone. They'd never see him again. His body's been put in the earth. A stone has been rolled to block the entrance to the tomb. They'll never see his body again. They'll never see him again. It's over. He's gone. And they were grieving. And they were weeping. And the pain was real. And they were suffering from the disbelief that flowed out of their grieving hearts. They couldn't believe he was really alive. And, and so we have an experience, an experience of, of um, confusion that flowed initially out of uh, a, a bad assumption and extended into a forgetfulness of what God had said. They were confused. They were bewildered. And, and then there was, there was this sense of grief that had so captivated them that they couldn't believe what the angel said. That brings us to a third experience. And the third experience is questions. Questions that flowed out of these circumstances, these unexplained circumstances. Verse number 12 of our text after the, the Bible says that the, the words of the women seemed to them as idle tales and they believed them not. Verse 12 says, Then arose Peter and ran unto the sepulchre and stooping down, beheld the linen cloths laid by themselves and departed wondering in himself. Wondering at that which was come to pass. Peter looked into the grave and when he looked into the grave, Peter began to wonder. He, he was filled with questions. You see, he saw, he saw the, the linen cloth, clothes, clothes or clothes laid by themselves. You see, the custom was they took those strips of linen. They would wrap an arm. They would wrap a leg. They would wrap the torso. As they would wrap it, they would pour spices, ointments. They would wrap it. And, and, and perhaps after three days, that, that linen clothes had become like a shell of a cocoon. And when Jesus Christ rose from the grave and his body disappeared, the linen clothes in all likelihood remained there in the form and shape of a body, but no body in it. And then there was the face napkin that had been laid over his face when they put him in the tomb. The face napkin didn't just sink down into the empty cavity where the head used to be, but it had been taken off, folded neatly, and laid neatly to the side. Which is an interesting little tidbit of history that God gave us. Because if someone stole the body, they would, 
They would have taken the cocoon as well as the body in the cocoon. And they certainly wouldn't have taken care to carefully fold the napkin and lay it nice and neat, fold it up. They would have just grabbed it, thrown it out of the way, grabbed the body and got out of there before they got caught. All little tidbits of historical evidence that God gave us to prove the skeptics are fools for the excuses they make up to try to explain away the obvious. Jesus rose from the grave just like he said he would do. And so Peter looks in, he sees the linen clothes, the body's not in the linen clothes, the face napkin. By the way, Jesus Christ was neat. He put things where they belonged. He folded up the napkin. He didn't just throw it away. You know, just moms, that's just a little, little tidbit for you with your kids, you know, when you're trying to teach them how to be neat and teach them how to make their bed and put their stuff away. Jesus was neat. He folded up the napkin when he took it off his face and he laid it gently aside, neat and folded. That's a good thing for you wives to teach to us men as well, <laughs> to be neat. But anyway, there, there, there are questions on Peter's mind. I, he was left in wonder at these circumstances. Everything that has happened. What's going on? Mary said that the body was taken. Then, then they say that an angel appeared and told him that he, no one took the body. He rose from the grave just like he said he would do. And they're filled with wonderment. They're filled with questions because the situation is so bizarre. And then Jesus began to make his appearance. He appeared to Mary Magdalene first. He appeared to other women. He appeared, and he began the amazing process of proving that he rose from the grave by meeting various groups of people. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that he actually appeared to 500 people at one time. And for a few weeks, Jesus Christ spent time with the apostles and his other disciples as well, teaching them. Gave them a 40-day crash course on the doctrine of the kingdom of God, Acts 1 tells us. And Jesus Christ proved over and over again, I did rise from the grave, just like I said I would do. But there's one final experience. There was the experience of confusion. There was the experience of disbelief. There was the experience of asking questions and being not sure of everything that, just how this came down. But there's a fourth experience, and that's the experience of victory. And the victory, the experience of victory was only realized by those who believed what Jesus Christ had taught them in Galilee. So if you look back to verse number 6 and 7, Verse number 6, the angel said, he's not here, he's risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. The fourth experience was the experience of victory. Victory experienced by everyone who believed what Jesus Christ had said in Galilee. Victory by everyone who took God at his word and believed this came down exactly the way God said it would come down. You may wonder, uh, when did Jesus Christ tell the disciples about this in Galilee? 
Well, my favorite account of it, I gave the reference there at the end of your worksheet. My favorite account of it is in Matthew 16. And when we went to Israel, when a group from our church went to Israel, we went and visited the very location where Jesus Christ taught that. It's Caesarea Philippi. It's just outside the gates of hell in the northernmost part of the northern kingdom of Israel. And there Jesus Christ had taken his disciples for a little R&R before they head down to Jerusalem for the crucifixion. And Jesus took them up for some R&R up at Caesarea Philippi, got away from the crowds around the Sea of Galilee. They went up to Caesarea Philippi. Jesus Christ taught them some really important stuff up there. He asked the apostles, because you know the apostles, you know, it wasn't like on day one when they were called to leave their nets and become fishers of men that they just had a, 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 a vision and believed everything about Jesus Christ. Their understanding of who Jesus Christ was grew gradually and slowly throughout the ministry. When they saw what he did on the stormy sea, on the Sea of Galilee, they looked at each other when the waves went still and the, the, the winds went still and uh, waves went still, winds stopped blowing. They looked at each other and they said, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this guy that we're following, listening to? Their understanding gradually grew to accept Jesus Christ was God incarnate in human flesh, the very Messiah. It was up there in Caesarea Philippi that Jesus Christ said to the disciples, we've been traveling all over Israel, most recently all over Galilee. What are people saying? What's the talk in the town? Who do people say that I am? They said, well, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're uh, John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. And Jesus Christ looked at them and says, what do you guys think? Am I just another prophet? Am I just a human being, sinful, but dedicated to doing the work of Jehovah? Who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus Christ said, Peter, you didn't get that out of your own brain. God told you that. In that discussion, the Bible says from that point on, Jesus Christ began to reveal to them how he had to go to Jerusalem and be crucified and rise from the grave. And Peter got a little bit pushy. Do you remember? He stood up to Jesus Christ. Jesus just said, I must needs go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die at the hands of sinful men. Peter stood up and said, no way. Be it not done. We won't let this happen to you, Jesus. Think about yourself, Jesus. Pity thyself, Jesus. This won't, we won't let this happen. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, Peter, get behind me, you Satan. You're talking like an unregenerate man thinking about what's good for me, my comfort, my lack of pain, my situation. You're thinking like common, unregenerate man. You're not thinking the way God thinks. God thinks what's good for them. 
How can I bless them? How can I be a help to them? You are a Satan trying to trap me and trip me up from doing what I came to do. Get behind me and get out of the way. And then Jesus looked at the apostles and said, you men need to learn something. The one who seeks to save his own life loses everything. And the one who's willing to lose his own life for the sake of others gains everything. It's the exact opposite of what your world teaches you. If you're going to be my follower, deny yourself. What you want, what feels good to you, what you like. If you want to be my follower, get over yourself. If you're going to be my follower, stop being an egomaniac. If you're going to be my follower, deny yourself. And then take up your cross. Which simply meant be willing to die for what it's going to cost you to be my follower. The cross was an implement of execution. It was a firing squad. It was a hangman's noose. It was an electric chair. It, it, was, a, it was a means of putting someone to death. And Jesus said, pick up that cross and put it on your back. Be willing to be executed for my sake. Be willing to die a martyr's death to follow me. Be willing to not get out of life what you want to get out of life. Be willing to die to yourself. And then follow me. Deny yourself. Take up thy cross and follow me. Because if you could gain the whole world and lose yourself, you've lost it all. What would anyone give in exchange for their own soul? There's something more important than money and what money can buy. You see, what's really valuable in life is going to cost you everything. And that's what Jesus Christ began to tell them in Caesarea Philippi. And as they went through Galilee, he kept reminding them, we're going to Jerusalem for me to be executed. And then I'm going to rise from the grave on the third day. And when it happened, they were confused. They didn't believe. They were grieving. And they were asking all kinds of questions. This doesn't make sense to us. The path to victory is always a path that leads to losing one's own life for the sake of Jesus Christ. And the final experience on Resurrection Sunday was the victory of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And almost every one of those apostles, according to historical tradition, all of those apostles except one ended up dying as martyrs for preaching about Jesus Christ. It cost them everything. It cost them their very own lives to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus' victory throughout all of eternity was won at the cross and the empty tomb. And our victory throughout all of eternity is won at the place of our sacrifice for his cause. Am I willing to deny myself, be willing to die, and follow Jesus Christ? If I am, 
willing to lose everything, I will gain everything for all of eternity. That's victory. And that was the fourth and final experience on Resurrection Sunday. The victory of being a follower of Jesus Christ who overcame death victoriously, who rose triumphantly from the grave, who now has conquering life, life to give to us, life to enable us to live forever with him throughout all of eternity. That's victory. And that was the experience at the Resurrection Sunday at the empty tomb. So in the words of Jesus Christ to Peter, don't listen to Satan. Don't listen to him try to tell you it's too costly to follow Christ. Don't listen to Satan tell you to think about yourself. Think about what you want. Think about what your goals are. Think about what you like. Don't listen to Satan. Listen to Jesus Christ. Because if you follow him, although it'll cost you some things now, you will enjoy victory throughout all of eternity. Which leads me to the bottom line up front. What is valuable costs dearly in life.